Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. The, uh, the book of Deuteronomy, just to kind of introduce it uh, to you a little bit, means the repetition of the law. And this book is unique in the set of the five books of the Torah in that in the very first phrase of the words, it says, now these are the words which Moses spoke. All the other books are clearly flatly say these are the words that God spoke. But this book says, no, these are the words that Moses spoke. That this is the teaching that Moses gave. And the other books of the Torah, when God and Moses were up on the mountain, why Moses was faithful in the book of Exodus and in faithful in the book of Numbers and Leviticus to repeat exactly that the Lord said this. But in this book, there's a shift. It now is a book which has more teaching to it. There's an expanded element because it repeats the things that have been spoken before. But the big difference of this book compared to the others is these are the words that were spoken at the time that that event happened. And in particular, this first chapter deals with the defining moment of Israel. The moment that defined the nature and the character of Israel more than any other thing that happened. It's not the Passover. I wish it was. It's not the moment that we acted in faith was our defining moment. When we went to the mountain, we heard the voice of God. That would have been good. No, there was another moment that really defined us. And as I read through here this, I'm going to concentrate primarily on chapter 1. It's going to be very revealing as to the defining moment of the nature of who Israel was. Follow along with me as I read and we'll comment on the words as we go. Verse 1, now these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite of Suf, between Paran, Tophel, and Laban, and Hazaroth, and Dai Zahav. Now, if you were paying attention to last Torah portion, last week we went through the portion called Journeys, or Stages. And it lists in sequence the 42 specific places that Israel went having left the city of Ramesses before they cross over the River Jordan. And you know what? This list right here in this verse, verse, doesn't match that one. Because there's some titles that are given here that Moses gives in giving us the commentary that are kind of like place names. This is the expression they use. They're place names because they're really describing things that happened in places. Let me walk you through what he really says for us across the Jordan in the wilderness. If you go back and you look, back in the other portion, there were three wildernesses that we went through. There was the wilderness of Egypt, of Ethan, there was the wilderness of Shur, and the wilderness of Sin. And we finally got to the wilderness of Sinai. What he's really talking about is, is that back those uh, wildernesses, it's almost like it doesn't make any difference because everyone, every time you were in one of those wildernesses, you had a problem with you didn't have water or you didn't have food or something. And you remember all the hassles we had back there in the wilderness? You wouldn't believe. You wouldn't believe about God would provide water or that he'd provide food and he had to give you manna and he had to give you quail by the evening. You know, that's what you did back there in the wilderness. And the Arabah, our Arabah. What's that? Well, that was that last place. You know, it was that plain there near the Moabites. You know, when we listened to Baal Peor. You remember the Midianite woman that came down and married the Simeonite man, and Phineas impaled both of them on a spear. Remember that whole big thing we had to go through? Remember all the trials and tests? Remember God had to judge 24,000 of us in that place? Opposite Suf, and between Paran, oh yeah, everybody remembers about Paran. You know, that was the place where we went and we, we sent the spies out for 40 days and we wouldn't believe. You know, there in the wilderness of Paran. And then we get to another interesting place and it says Tophel and Laban, Laban. You know what? The rabbis have gone back, they cannot find any place with those names. I mean, you can go back in the commentaries if you want to read. There is no place to name that. 
So they discovered it's not the name, it's the meaning. You see, the word tofel means to falsely accuse, to come against. And lavan is a word for white. You remember when they looked at the bread from heaven and says, well, we don't want to eat that stuff. And they falsely accused God of things. And they despised the bread. Oh, look, it looks too white. You remember that place, don't you? Remember when we were back in the wilderness in that place and when we, when we discarded the bread that God gave to us? Or how about Hazarot? You remember that place? You know, that was the place where Miriam stood up and said, you know, has God only spoken through Moses? Has he not also spoken to all of us? And God had to take Miriam and Aaron and walk them into the tent of meeting and said, wait a minute, I want to make sure we get something straight here. Yeah, when I talk to a prophet, you know, I send him a vision or a dream. But when I talk to Moses, I talk to him face to face. I don't talk to him like a prophet. Were, were you not afraid when you said this? And how Miriam got cast out of the camp for a week with leprosy? Same place, Korah and his 250 princes decided to inspire full-blown mutiny. Remember that place, don't you? Hazarot, you know what that means to us? You know, all the rebellion, all the mutiny, we, we, don't, we reject God's anointed? Oh, we remember that place. But how about Dizaphav? You won't go back and find a place with a name like that. It means something else. It means the abundance of gold. You remember all the gold we brought out of Egypt? You know what we did with that? Boy, we got ourselves in big trouble with that one. We took all that gold and we melted it down and we made a golden calf. We made a idol. We made a god. And we said, let us, let us put that god out in front of us and let us say that's the god that brought us out of Egypt. You remember that one, don't you? Are these the defining monuments of Israel? Oh, they're kind of about Israel, but he says, no, there's something even worse than all this mess. That's how he begins the book. It's 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now we're getting to the defining moment. Something that happened at Kadesh Barnea. And it came about on the 40th year, on the fourth day of the 11th month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded him to give to them. And after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Aserot and Andre, Across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law, saying, The Lord our God spoke to us at Horeb, saying, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Horeb is the, is the Torah version of Sinai, Mount Sinai. You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and set your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the seacoast and the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon and as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. In other words, he's saying, go and go, go into the promised land. See, I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to them and to their descendants after them. Remember, we've come out of Egypt and we've gone to the mountain as Moses was instructed. And now he's given us a covenant and a tabernacle and his laws and his commandments. Now go and receive the promised land. You know, the place that I promised to your fathers, the land flowing full of milk and honey, and the place that the reason you left Egypt to go to this place, go to that place now. Verse 9, and I spoke to you at that time saying, I am not able to bear the burden of you alone. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day as the stars of heaven for the multitude. Truly, God's promise was correct when he said to Abraham, I will make your descendants like the stars of the heaven. It's not 70 anymore. It's estimated at that point there was about 3 million of the children of Israel in the wilderness at that point. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are and bless you just as he has promised you. How can I alone bear the burden 
the load and the burden of you and your strife. Choose wise and discerning and experienced men from your tribes, and I will point them as your heads. And you answered me, and you said, The thing which you have said to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and appointed them heads over you, leaders of thousands and of hundreds, of fifties and of tens, and officers for your tribes. Then I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen, and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen, or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. And the case is too hard for you. You shall bring it to me, then I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. When we got ready to be assembled and be a people, before we went up to take the land, we kind of got our act together. We got a little organized. We, we, we recognized those who were leaders amongst us. We appointed them unto the task. We established them and said, you, you do the work of leading the people and to decide the issues amongst them. Verse 19, Then we set out from Horeb, and we went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw, on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, just as the Lord our God had commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. Praise God, we're getting ready to launch to go take the promise. We're getting ready to receive the promised land. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is about to give us. See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you approached me and said, Let us send up men before us, that they may search out the land for us and bring back to us word of the way by which we should go up and the cities which we shall enter. And the thing pleased me, and I took twelve of your men, one man for each tribe. Pleased Moses, but it didn't please the Lord. Seemed like a good idea. I mean, we're being commanded, we're going to go up, we're going to get the promised land, and we're going to send the spies in expressly for the purpose. We just want to know what's the best road that we should go in with. What are the first things that we're going to encounter? How good is the place? You know, just give us a great report back. Just tell us how good the food is, and, well, while you're there, you know, kind of tell us what the guys that are there, what do they look like? How, how many weapons do they have? How many guys do they have? Are the cities fortified or not? Are they strong? Are they weak? You know... Uh, you know, how, you know, I, we're probably going to have to fight for this a little bit, so kind of give us a lay of the land, so to speak. How good really is the land? It's a very normal um, thing that happens when people go into conflict. I don't know if you uh, ever saw the movie or if you've ever read particularly some of the history of the Civil War. And I'm being a strategy and tactics buff. I've read and studied those things. And there's one very special moment in the movie that's been made recently about Gettysburg, about the dialogue that goes on between General Buford and General Reynolds and, and, uh, and uh, the, the Confederates and so forth about the battlefield of Gettysburg, because everybody that comes there and gets ready to go to the battle, they always say the, they always ask the same question. They always answer the same question. They said, well, tell me about the land though, is it, is, it, is it good ground? And the answer at Gettysburg, every, every officer came back and said, it's good ground to fight. It's got the rolling plains. It's got the open area where you can line up your artillery and all your troops. It's good ground. Is there, are there heights where we can camouflage? Are there, are there areas that we can flank with? Is there terrain that will help us to maneuver? And, and so we can do what we... Oh, it's good ground. And to all military strategists, when you go in to spy the ground out for the battle, you always ask the question, is it good ground? Well, they wanted to send the spites in to see if it was good ground. And they came back with a report and they said, oh, it's very good ground. Of course, the enemy is huge. They're bigger than us. They're not just a little bit bigger. They're, they're really big. We're grasshoppers compared to them. In fact, I had to move very quickly so that they just wouldn't accidentally step on me. 
And their cities, they, you know, the report came out, their cities, they're, they're fortified all the way to heaven. I mean, the wall just kept going. I, there's no ladder that could go over such a wall. They're huge. And you, you know the story. The, the spies came back and they gave the bad report. Good ground to fight on. Terrible people to have to fight, though. And there's even the Anakim in there. There's, there's, there's a lot of Jebusites in there and Amorites, a lot of Ike guys in there. You know, and it's, it's bad news. It's really bad news for us. We brought back lots of fruit. It says verse 24, and they turned and went up into the hill country and they came back to the valley of Eskol and spied it out and they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and they brought it down and they brought back a, a, a report and said, it's a good land which the Lord our God is about to give us. Verse 26, the defining moment of Israel. Yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. No matter what had happened in Egypt, Egypt, the greatest civilization in the earth at that point, the Egyptian chariots, the choice chariots were made of gold. There was estimated to be some six hundred choice chariots and when the choice chariots used to come into the battlefield with the Egyptians all other peoples fled if they've got that much gold to spend on chariots they're richer than us they can hire more mercenaries they can make more spears more arrows there's no way we could I mean they were just like flaunting it and throw it in everybody's face we're so rich and we're so capable we even have golden chariots It's the same way right now that the United States is sometimes viewed in conflict. When the United States rolls over and rolls out its fiery chariots, other nations are deathly afraid. The, the United States has got weapons. You don't even see them coming and they can hit you. You never heard them and they hit you. They have smart weapons that, well, you turn your radar on, they'll nail you. They'll nail you. Some of the kind of weapons that we have today, there's a wonderful story that's told back uh, in the Lebanese conflict. Modern. This is a good example of modern weapons. This reporter was talking about this Palestinians, and they had this artillery gun and a GMC pickup truck, and they were dragging this piece of artillery, and they parked it right between two big, tall buildings there in, there in Lebanon, there in Beirut, when they were fighting the Israelis. They said they made a bad mistake. Mistake number one was they parked it. They should have kept rolling. They stood still. They unloaded that gun. They put a round into it, and they fired a round between two narrow buildings over onto the Israeli side. Mistake number two, they didn't immediately pull away. They decided to try to fire a second one. In the course of the time of reloading, here came the answering artillery shell from the Israelis between the two buildings and nailed the gun. See, the technology that we have now today, we have radars that can see the rounds coming across, and the computer computes exactly the trajectory and where it originated from. They just punch those numbers into the gun. The gun directs to it and puts a round right back on it. It's called an artillery duel. Only U.S. weapons and Israeli weapons, if you fire once, you don't get to fire again against them because they'll nail that spot before you can fire the second round. You have to shoot and then move. Shoot and then move. If you stay one more time, try to shoot twice, you get hit. That's how fearsome the weapons are today. In those days, the chariots of Egypt were considered to be the primo weapon on the battlefield. They had watched God destroy the choice chariots of Egypt. They had seen God take out the elite of the elite of warfare. But now we're getting ready to go up and we're going to deal with some vagabond types, some ex-Hittite types, you know, with some of their, and we're afraid. We're afraid. We don't, we don't think God can do that anymore. You can take out the choice chariots, but, you know, I don't know about this other stuff. They had seen the judgments upon the gods of Egypt. 
they had seen every one of the gods that they believed in Egypt, had, God had used them against them. You know, you guys want to make God a frog? Okay, I'll give you a bunch of frogs. So they got frogs. They got frogs where they were sick of frogs. You want to make uh, your god bugs, so little scarabs. You ever seen those uh, little beetles that have that real shiny color and they got a little horn thing? They're around here every once in a while. Those are the famous Egyptian scarabs. They thought that little colorful beetle was like a god. And they, they, they wouldn't kill them. They, they, would, they would protect them. They thought they were real fancy. God just smashed them beetles, something bad. Real bad. They thought Pharaoh was a god. I mean, in Egypt, Pharaoh, if he spoke, it was your life. And God just terribly said some very nasty things to Pharaoh. He said, Pharaoh, the only reason why you're still alive is I just want to use you for bait, an example, you know, of, of uh, being judged. So that the other nations will know that you're worthless. <laughs> you know, that, you know, that's like, that, that's unbelievable in those terms and in and, and the world that existed at that time. God showed himself to be mighty and strong against the strongest against the mightiest, to prove that he was the Lord. They aren't the Lord. These guys aren't flaunting that they're gods. They're just men. But we don't think God can deal with men, I guess. We don't think God can deal with nations uh, in that way. What it, what it really was is that they really didn't think that uh, God would do it for them. They didn't think God would do it for them. They kind of knew about themselves. They kind of knew they weren't worthy of it. I mean, if God's going to do it, he's not, he's not going to do it because we deserve it. He would probably have to be very gracious to do it for us. And fundamentally, that's what I've discovered about a lot of the folks, particularly today, those of us who would call ourselves believers. You know, if you really get down to the essence, they've got an issue going on in their life that really needs some help from God, and, and, and they're asking for counsel from other people and so forth. But if you really get down to where, where the rubber hits the road, you know, they really don't believe God would do anything for them. They don't think they're worthy or worthwhile. You know, why would God do anything for me? I mean, if you take stock of me spiritually, I mean, you know, I don't have any, I don't have any righteousness before me. I don't have anything to commend myself before God. Why would God do anything for me? Oh, just for his name's sake to prove to you that he's God, maybe. Maybe he would do it for that reason. For his name's sake. Because he's a good and gracious God. And he makes promises to his people. And he wants to be a father. He wants to be like a husband. To love us and prove to us and show to us. And he wants us to prove him to be a great God. Hey, yeah, but I don't want to do that. If I were to do that, then I would have to believe in him. I mean, there, you know, he would show himself to me and then I would have to respond to him. I would have to maybe like even obey him. And call him the Lord. And not only call him Lord, but I'd have to act like I, that I knew he was the Lord. I'd just as soon have my own thing here going. And we'll just kind of get the goodies as best we can, but we'll do our own thing. The, um, I shared with the uh, Revelation class, you know what really idolatry really is? It's, it's when we take and we make a god. Okay, It doesn't make any difference whether, what material we use. We just make a god. And we sit down and we say, okay, God, we, we want to have a god. And let's set, let's set our god right here. You know, I want him in my life, and let's set him right here. But then it's pretty well understood. You know, I've got my idol god set here. Now, don't talk to me unless I talk to you first. I don't want you, you know, spouting off to me and telling me to do anything. I'll, You know, when I'm in a good mood, and I feel like doing something, then I'll come and I'll do my homage thing, and I'll, you know, so forth. As I've, as I've said to a lot of people, we, we do that. We make a God, and we set him, and we just deal with him when we want to deal with him. We don't deal with him when he wants to deal with us. We just we deal with him when we want to deal with him. And a lot of times, most people, they just want to deal with him from about 10 o'clock to about noon on Sunday. That's when we'll deal with God. Let's just leave him there in that place. I don't want him back at my house. I might, he might be telling me what to do. 
Let's just leave him here, and then I'll come check in with him once in a while, and when I need something bad, then I'll get it from him. And let's just have him give me commandments that I've already kind of pre-approved. You know, the commandments that I'm comfortable with, I like. Let's just have him give those commandments, and then I'll say, yes, I obey the Lord. Let's do it that way. And let's take, you know, there is, there really is a one true God. Let's take the name of the one true God, and let's put it on him. And let's take the glory, some of the glory of the one true God. Let's put it on him. A little history, some of that, we'll put that on him. And we'll say, he's our God. It's idolatry. And if you're doing that, you're in deep trouble. Big time trouble. Because you forgot there's a real, there really is a God. And he knows you're doing that. And that the real God, he says he's coming back one day to wipe out every God set up against him. And I can guarantee you that that God is set up against him. Is set up. You want to know which God you're serving? Just look at the commandments you're keeping. That will be a dead giveaway. It'll tell you what God you're serving. Just examine your life. Who, who do I listen to? Who do I worship? Who do I bow down to? Who do I honor? Who's God? And then you might want to go back to the Bible and say, do I believe in the God of creation? You know, the creator. Do I believe in the God of uh, that uh, knew Abraham? Isaac and Jacob. How about the God of Moses, the God of Israel, the God of the kings and the prophets, the God of Yeshua, the God of the apostles? It's the same God that's in the Bible, but may maybe you got a different version of that God. Israel had been introduced to the one true God, the God of their fathers. But here was the problem. They didn't want him. They like the promises, but they don't like to have to obey the command. I want the blessings. I want the goodies, but I don't want to have to be in a covenant relationship. I don't want to have to, you know, I'll call you Lord, but I don't want to have to do anything. Yet you were not willing, but rebelled against the Lord and the command of the Lord your God. And you grumbled in your tents and you said, because the Lord hates us. Oh, that's a good one. When I first, I remember first reading these words and I said, what? When did the Lord hate us? Well, he didn't. But we lied. We falsely accused God. Folks, you know, there are moments when, when great difficulties sometimes happen in, in our lives. The events of our lives, tragedies happen. You know, the tragedies of the loss of children or family members or accidents or disease or and, you know, it's amazing. The people that are sometimes in that trauma and the difficulty with it, especially if you have to go and minister to them. And then you hear these words, God hates me. I mean, how, how do you minister to somebody in that? First of all, what they're saying is absurd. It's wrong. It's not correct. It might be that God will judge you, but he will still love you. But God doesn't hate. God doesn't hate us. There's no scenario of God hating us. There's no example in history of God hating us. I mean, he hates sin. He hates the evil, but he doesn't hate us. But the children of Israel, standing there, said, God hates us. It's absurd. It really is. It is absurd. And he says, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying the people are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified to heaven. And besides, we saw the sons of Anakim there. And I said to you, do not be shocked nor fear them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you have come to this place. But for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God. What, what else should God have done? What else should he have done? I don't, know, I don't know. I don't know what else God could have done. 
they made their decision. It was the defining moment of who and what they are. Now, the rabbis try to offer some sort of explanation as to why Israel did this. And one, one explanation says, well, you see, in their head, they were still slaves. God had made them a free people. They were free physically. But in here, inside, where it counts, the thing that defines them, they were still slaves. If they were still slaves, why didn't they obey? Slaves are taught to obey. That doesn't make sense. It's just a vain attempt to try to make excuses for people who decided to choose death instead of life. Brethren, the thing that is uh, most concerns me about this story, and you've heard me say this many times over theme-wise, I believe that these tests, these things that happen in the wilderness, we're getting ready to face. My, my great concern for this generation, for the people that we are, is that we will see the events unfold and the beginning of the Great Tribulation. And we will be in shock. We will be afraid. I've shared with people, when you see that altar get shut down, you'll go numb. You'll go numb because it'll suddenly hit you. It'll, it, the weight of the Scripture will suddenly rest on you, and you'll say, oh my goodness, it's true. The prophecies are true. We've been, we've been talking about this. We've been reading about this. We've been paying attention here for the last couple of years. And, and, and it's happened. What Yeshua said more than 2,000 years ago, it's happening. What the prophets have said 3,500 years ago, it's happening. We're coming to the end of the age. We know that the Messiah, the ancient of days, coming from the heavens, from the farthest reach of the stars. He's getting ready to come back to the earth. It's going to be the end of this place as we understand it. And we're at the right time in the wrong place. I tell people, I don't care how much you claim to believe at the moment, you're going to be in shock. The reality of the truth of the prophecies will just hit you. And you'll go through a trembling kind of cold sweat. You'll feel your bones get weak inside of you. And you have to make a decision. And, you, and the decision will weigh on you heavily. Do you really believe that God has the power and the desire to deliver you and your family from these days? Will he save you? Does he even know who you are so that he could identify you from the rest of the heathen who are getting ready to be judged and distinguish who you are versus them? Do you have any kind of relationship there that could commend you before him so that you might call upon his name and he will deliver you? Is there anything there in your relationship? Because at this point you realize, oh my goodness, if this thing is not cooking and working here, if my faith is not real, if God's not real, we're in trouble. Now, for all that has already happened before, will it weigh on you? Will it have anything to do with the decision you make? Will you remember, for example, God's already done this with a whole group of people called Israel when they came out of Egypt. Will you understand that this is when God's people are now getting ready to come out of the whole world and go into his great promised land, the millennial kingdom? Will you see the picture? Will you understand that all that stuff that happened before with the other brethren, it's for an example so that you would see exactly what you're going to have to go through. And this time you'll make the right decisions, not like Israel before, who wouldn't trust the Lord, who wouldn't believe in his salvation who were afraid for their children, for their wives, and for the size of the giants and, and the Anakim and those fortresses they got that go all the way up to heaven? Or will you say, oh my goodness, we're grasshoppers compared to them. And will you then be afraid, not the fear of the Lord, afraid where you won't trust the Lord? And his great salvation. I mean, you know, what, what if it's just a big history book? 
what if it what if all that other stuff that happened that was for those people but but this is a different time this is a maybe god um you know took a break maybe he's on vacation this week and and he doesn't know that what's happened what if what if the big uh, communication lines between heaven and earth have uh, failed well you know i always pray and i always assume that he would hear me but what if what if the prayers aren't getting through what do we do then who are we going to believe in it'll be our defining moment it'll be the defining moment of the final generation of this age have they learned the lessons from the wilderness have they learned that the key issue the defining moment of Israel was rejecting the promise of God will we reject the millennial kingdom I'd rather I'd I, I think I'd really rather stay here in Egypt and eat cucumbers and melons and leeks, a little garlic on the side, maybe. I don't want to eat bread from heaven. I mean, who knows what that stuff is, really? I mean, what is it? I mean, it just shows up in the early morning. It gets worms in it if you don't eat it that day. I mean, what is that stuff? What, 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 you know, do you believe God can give you water? Do you, do you believe God that understands the needs that you have? Would he care enough about you to understand that you need food? Or maybe he's just a big God, you know, busy up there at the big controls, you know, dealing with much more important and bigger issues. Why would he be interested in you? Or your family, or... For that matter, this assembly of, of people here, why, why would he be interested in us? I mean, if he's really going to go out and save a lot of people, why, why us? I mean, why not uh, a whole bunch more others, people? It'll be our defining moment. In the case of the children of Israel here, a great judgment came upon them. Verse 34 there, chapter 1 says, Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry and took an oath, saying. He heard the words when the children of Israel said, we, we don't want to go up there. We don't want the promised land. We'd rather, we'd rather go back to Egypt. In fact, they said, it would be better for us to die in Egypt or die in this wilderness than to go up there and die. Let me tell you something, when you get down to real defining moments of your own personal life, be very careful what you say, because God will usually use the very words that you say to judge you with. And in this particular case, he said, okay, let's do it according to what they said. They will die in the wilderness. Look at what it says there, verse 34. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, your Devarim, and he was angry and took an oath, saying, not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb. He shall see it, and to him and his sons I will give the land on which he has set foot, because he followed the Lord fully. The Lord was angry with me also, this is Moses, on your account, saying, Not even you shall enter there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter there and encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And moreover, your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your sons, who this day have no knowledge of good or evil, shall enter it, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn around and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. I have said this before. Let me repeat it to you again. When the defining moment comes for you and you must make a decision of faith at the start of the Great Tribulation, when you know you're in the Great Tribulation, when you know that these events are happening, we're coming to the end of the age, the Lord's definitely coming back, but you're going to have to get through this period of time. And you have to make a decision. Am I going to definitely for sure trust the Lord, not only with me, with my wife, with my children, with my brethren, if you decide you're not going to, let me tell you what's going to happen to you. Because it's already happened. You will probably die in the Great Tribulation. Something will happen and you probably will die. All the people you were concerned about, though, God, just to despite you, 
and prove that he is the Lord and the God of a great salvation, he will deliver your wife and your children and your brethren and your friends so that they can wait for your resurrection at the end. Just to make sure everybody knows who the Lord is. That's what he did to three million of the sons of Israel. You think he's not going to do it again? Because he's trying to accomplish the same purpose. He was trying to take the children of Israel, which were a bunch of ex-slaves, and teach them how to be free men. How they could be a nation that would be raised up with righteousness, with dignity and freedom. Only this time, what's he doing with us? Oh, something along those same lines. He wants to take a group of people, us, filthy and as unholy as we are, and he wants to make us a holy people. This is the end of side A. A righteous people. He wants to clean us up. He wants to make us into the bride of the Messiah. Holy, without spot, without blemish, so that we'll be ready to step into the kingdom and get married to the Messiah. He wants to clean us up. He wants to get us ready for the greatest thing that has ever taken place since creation. If you're not willing to submit yourself to that, you don't believe that you're in that, that you're a part of it, you won't be there. You won't believe there. Listen, the Torah is very clear. When Israel had to go to battle, they would assemble all of the men, and they would ask basically three questions. Is there any man here who has just gotten married and has not dwelt with his wife for one year. And those men would hold their hands up. They would say, you are dismissed from the battle. You may go, go dwell with your wife, be in peace for at least one year before you're called to battle. Establish yourself with your wife. Go, go dwell, at least dwell in the house that you took all the labor to build. At least dwell there at least once before you go into battle. And then the final call was, we got any cowards here? If you're a coward and you don't believe that God will deliver you in this great battle, we don't want you here. We can't afford to have you because you'll sow rebellion and you'll cause other men's faith to grow weak and we'll lose the war because of you. Get out of the ranks now. Nobody is going to go in this battle without believing and brethren, I would tell you that the same thing is going to happen with regard to the Great Tribulation. Before we go into this great spiritual battle, the Lord's going to sort out who's going to be there. You are not going to go through the Great Tribulation and be called one of the Tribulation saints and do the great works of faith that they will do, fight the great fight that will be fought, in some cases giving up your life for the lives of many, nor live to the end to see the coming of the king, unless you have faith and you believe and know who your God is. Otherwise, he will sort you out. Now, I like to believe, and I do believe, that the God that I serve is a God with great mercy and great grace, and that those that have to get sorted out, they have a part. Well, I'm not talking about eternal destiny and so forth. I'm, I'm talking about if you're going to be part of this group that goes into the kingdom, you've got to pass some tests. And you have to early on stand up and you have to be one of those who has the testimony that I called upon the name of the Lord and I asked him to deliver me. That will be the testimony that will be common to all of them. There won't be anybody there kind of faking it out. There won't be anybody there that said, well, you know, I really didn't do that. I thought I'd just hang around with the other guys that believe. That's a little bit like going into a battle and not even having a weapon. No gun, no shield, no uniform, nothing. You're naked. Don't go into battle that way. Don't do it. Go in there knowing who the commander of the host is, who you take orders from, what you believe in, that you are convinced that he's going to win, that you're going to be a part of the winning team. That... The enemy is going to be delivered over into the hand of the Lord. You know the reason why people won't make the commitment? Because they don't really think the Lord's going to win. They really don't believe the Lord. You know what the head of the list is that says it doesn't go into the kingdom? The head of the list 
You know, the one that include murderers and perverts and liars and thieves. You know what the head of the list, of course, is? Cowards. Spiritual cowards. You know, I would have loved to have stood there in those days and heard exactly what was said. I mean, there's only 600,000 sons of Israel armed, ready to take the land. Six, 600,000. That's more soldiers than was in the Gulf War. 600,000 soldiers were standing there and wouldn't believe. They wouldn't believe Joshua after seeing all that they saw. That's how much the spies' report discouraged them. They had overwhelming forces. You put God with them, and it wasn't even a contest. So the decision they made, they just flat rejected God. They just flat rebelled. Three million sons of Israel who experienced all the things they experienced, that was a pretty tough test. There's only a couple of them that would believe. Boy, I hope, I hope we learn the lessons from this. Because it's real obvious. I can tell you what the results are. You know, it's, it's crystal clear. Believe, you live. You don't believe, you get judged. You know, the Lord ain't fooling around on this one. This is a serious time. It was always building to this. We always knew it was. It's prophesied. Many have spoken of it. It's just that we get to be the people who get to make the big decision. You know, maybe it would be better if we died in the previous age. Maybe it would be better if we, when the Great Tribulation happens, we, we kick off early. No, it wouldn't. Life is the better choice. We serve the God of the living. We don't serve the God of the dead. And if God's given you life to live, live it. It's a wonderful gift. That's what we're going to have in the kingdom is life. So when we make the decision to believe the Lord, we believe the Lord. We obey his commandment. We go in and we take the land that he's prepared and laid out before us. We take the kingdom. We want to be a part of those things. But this time, brethren, and I, I really beg of you, you know, learn the lesson from my ancestors. When it comes to the defining moment for you to decide whether you're going to trust the Lord and go in and take the land, whether you want to go back to Egypt, please make the decision to go in and take the land. You don't have to do the fighting. The Lord says he'll do the fighting. The Lord says he'll deliver the kingdom to you. You don't have to go take it. In fact, the very last verse of this Torah portion, chapter 3, verse 22, says, Do not fear them, for the Lord your God is the one who is fighting for you. But my ancestors didn't learn that lesson. Please, let's learn this lesson. Let us not go another year through Devarim and not learn this lesson and believe the Lord that he has the power to deliver. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Shabbat. Thank you, Lord, for the words that Moses spoke to us in the wilderness. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, that you have the power and the authority to speak and things come into being, whether there be deliverance or life or the things that we need. Lord, we desire to be a people, a real people to you. Not, not a kind of people, not a pseudo-believing people, a real believing people. And Lord, we know that you don't want to have any of the nonsense of the things that we think we believe in right now, or false gods or idols in our tent bags, that you want us to be the right and proper people before you. Lord, I ask that you deliver the people that are here so that you might na make your name great in all of the earth. That in the state of Oklahoma, they will know that there was a people who were submitted to God, the one true God. And he became known as the God of the people in Oklahoma. And you delivered many from the remotest parts of the earth and brought them back into your kingdom. And that we stood up and bore witness and said, you are the one true God. And you are the only God that has salvation. And all of the strong men... And all those who trusted in other things, they had to bow down before you and they had to say, yes, you are the Lord. Lord, we would desire to be that people. But we know, Lord, that our faith needs to be dramatically strengthened. We know, Lord, that we need to get out of ourselves. We need to start looking to your purposes. And we need to know the promises that you've given to us personally. Lord, I would pray 
especially for my brethren, that it would be clear and sure in their heart that they know who you are and that their great confidence would be in the greatness of you. Lord, as the days approach and the defining moment for us comes, look down and have mercy on us, Lord, please. Remember that we're just dust, but by your spirit, we can be raised up to be your people. So, Lord, we ask for your deliverance, your spirit, your mercy, your grace, all of the good things of yourself, Lord. Even your presence, Lord, even your bread. We'll eat your bread and we'll glad, be glad. We do desire to have your presence with us, Lord. We welcome you to this land and to this earth. We, are, we want to be your servants. So, Lord, we would ask that you look down with kindness and favor upon us. You'd direct us and you would show us how to be your people. Make the Torah come alive in us, Lord. Make your words speak to us. And give us, Lord, enlarge our heart to obey you. We confess to you, Lord, that we kind of have a heart to do it, but our flesh is very weak. Help us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for all of the fine gifts that you've given to us, all the blessings that we have. And, Lord, if what you want to do is demonstrate your great power to many by bringing great judgments, even in the midst of your judgments, your Lord, we will still believe in you. We will still know that you're our God and that you love us and you can tell the difference between us and others. So, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for what you have for us in the future. And we look forward to that great day when the defining moment can become for us that we will be found to be the sons of Abraham, the sons of God, the sons that walk by faith. And we pray this in the name of Yeshua, our coming King. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968-Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.